This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Olympic canoe slalom coach at British Canoeing, Craig Morris. He discusses his constraint-led approach and how this benefits the athletes, his work in empowering his athletes and how this benefits them on race days, as well as some of the challenges faced by Olympic athletes. Oh, and why you're here, why not do us a favour by subscribing and sharing this podcast with a friend. Thanks in advance and I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So Craig, listen, really appreciate you making a bit of time for me. I know that you've got a, a lot on and um so yeah, really, really thankful that you've been able to make a bit of space. How are things your end? All okay? Yeah, fine. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, it's great to be here. Nice to, to press pause and have a, some time for reflection and learning with you. Perfect. So um for me, this is a really good opportunity just to learn a little bit more um around a sport that maybe haven't got a lot of understanding of. And maybe just some learnings that can be carried across, I guess, mainstream into into sports that I'm more familiar with. So for people that don't know you and don't know your background, can you just kind of give us a bit of an insight to what your role is and what that means from kind of a day-to-day, week-to-week basis? Sure, yeah. So I'm Craig Morris, um, born in the Black Country in the West Midlands. um, And yeah, brought up kicking and screaming as someone who didn't like taking part in canoeing on Dudley's finest canal networks and um, yeah if we fast forward uh, more years than I care to mention to now um, yeah the fact that I'm employed um, in in performance sport or high performance sport in in that discipline is is quite ironic (laughs) sure my dad thinks it's ironic anyway maybe a bit of I told you so but yeah so I I started canoeing at a young age Michael like five Um, yeah as a um defiant youngster really because my brother was five years older and and was well into the sport um and the long and short of it really didn't find my own sort of sense of purpose and, and clarity and selfishness almost to pursue it in my own um paddling career to, re- to really make sense of that uh, and fell into coaching or was dragged into coaching just as an opportunity while I was a bit lost coming out of university um, and here we are, probably the best part of 16, 17 years later, my, my journey of coaching in the sport has really taken me, really fortunately, from, from beginners and, and voluntary work right through to, to working at the Olympic Games. Perfect. So I think the first question, um, which is really good to set the scene, is what's the pathway for an individual that's got interest in canoeing and potentially wants to end up as a member of the team that you currently coach? Yeah, it's a fascinating area to probe into. I think it's changed dramatically in the last 20 years as well. So when I was was a youngster, really, canoeing was an extension of enjoying travel, I think. And we used to do a lot of caravanning and we loved the outdoors. And, you know, whether it was in the, in the mountains or on the river, we were just there and having fun. And a lot of people kind of galvanized this sort of family social network around that. And the club network was quite strong at that stage, the local club network. Um, even in the flat water uh, on the canal network of the Midlands, it was pretty strong comparative to what it is now. And so the network was very much um, clubs, uh, national governing bodies supported clubs to a degree with the funding they had at the time. Now, I think the picture looks extremely different and we're probably in a bit of a state of change. Um, There came a time where canoeing participation hit hit quite a, a low 
Um, and the club network was was struggling for numbers, struggling for volunteers to support it. And therefore, as a governing body, we kind of took it on us to, to I guess, try and secure development a little bit as best as we could. Um, so people would actually come from beginning, their first experience of beginning in a boat would be part of a program tryout, talent identification, if you will, um, through to then going on to pathways. And then maybe I even haven't, uh, I find it really strange, but the youngsters of today who are, who are now some of their top boats have, have probably hardly ever, if ever, paddled on a natural river. Um, so <laughs> we might say they're spoiled, but we wouldn't do that publicly, obviously. Um, so yeah, pathway has changed. We are obviously mindful of, of the vulnerability of that thin blue line of, of development in our sports. So we are looking at ways to expand and the legacy of London was strong in terms of, of bringing people into the sport and trying to bolster club networks again. But essentially the kind of performance end of our sport is based around a few key centers at the elite level anyway, high performance senior level. Um, and the club network is, is an area for us to really focus on still, I think, and try and galvanize. I think the challenge, as with many sports these days, is um, getting that balance of that like socio-cultural network within, within the sport. Um, I think that's probably been the most hit in the time that I've seen um, as it's transcended my career. Where are those uh, kind of elite centres based, if you like? Where they so within England, we have um, two or three. Uh, the main one for a high performance senior program is where I'm talking to you from now. That's in Lee Valley, which is um, just outside the M25, North London. Um, and that's where the Olympic Games was in 2012, uh, where we've all moved from at some point in our life, pretty much, is, is Nottingham, home Pierpont. Um, so the performance centre there, I think, opened in, in 1985 and was the real sort of hotbed for canoeing for many of us. So I, I went to university there to pursue my own canoeing. Um, and there are some satellite centres around as well. Um, there's one in Teesside, one in Cardiff, one in Pinkston in Scotland and Glasgow. Uh, I think once you get to a certain level, kind of the facilities and the access to peer peer learning and, and coaching at the highest level kind of sees generally most people navigate to London these days. Um, but we are trying to obviously keep that sort of um, geographical satellite centre uh, a real thing that can nurture nurture people in development. Having that broad net to start off with, just giving people an opportunity to almost find the sport. And then, as you said, if, if, if it's highlighted that they have a particular interest and maybe some some particular talent in the area then they've got that pathway I guess what it does lend its next question to is what are some of the key characteristics for someone who does well in the sport so obviously you look at basketball you go like LeBron James Michael Jordan football <laughs> rugby they have been for a paddler is there anything in particular that you can kind of hang your hat on and say this is a particular skill or physical attribute that helps them to find some level of success at the sport yeah i mean there's a huge amount of variability and and uh, we might get onto my views on sort of motor learning and things like that um just as, as a snippet we've seen olympic medalists in our sport with a with a height and age uh, weight range sorry that would be very significant from a physical perspective so you know i one of our best paddlers over the years was 62 kilos and about five foot seven five foot eight um, but equally, you'll have guys pushing towards 90 kilos and, and over six foot. Um, and, and similar on the female side, obviously diff different ranges, but 
Um, there's no one way, I guess. There's no one type. Um, one thing that is important, I would say, is is in order to be fluid and fast on a on a big white water course, um, then staying light on top of the water is important. Therefore, power to weight in however you achieve that from an individual perspective is the key characteristic. I think that we would most slalom coaches would would kind of agree that is important. Um, how you achieve that, obviously, it, it is very individual, whether it's from the strength side or or from the body weight side or a combination of everything and how you use it through your skill on the water. Um, but in the run itself, I think adaptability, it, it, it's changed over the years. It used to be a very aerobic sport. It's now a very power-based re-acceleration and aerobic sport, but it doesn't last long enough. It's around 100 seconds tops at its max, so it's not super long to be too anaerobic. Um, but yeah, the power-to-weight re-acceleration element is huge and courses are become more complex and shorter as as the sport has grown and the boats have accommodated that by becoming shorter and more maneuverable um but yeah adaptability and decision making as as sort of skill-based perceptual characteristics are really important for us um and yeah if you if you're pretty pretty ballsy if i may use such a word on the white water that always helps um because i think you pay attention to to less fewer information sources that gives you more adaptability in the run to to be fast. And for you guys who obviously you, you're looking around, looking at the sport, how do you identify that kind of lightness on on the water itself, or that power to power acceleration? How do you actually view someone's run and go, that's a characteristic they have, or something that actually with a little bit of tweaking here or there, we 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 think that they'd be high potential in that area. I'll try and answer a big question there with a sh with a short one. I, th I think just dwelling within it, really. So, you know, I certainly, as a coach, like to spend a lot of time observing and really dwelling in the situation um, and a variety of situations. So, within our sport, to give a bit of context, each venue is very different. Each course is different. So, th there's no sort of gold medal course or track or time, and there's no world record time because every course is different and every venue is different. And even if you imagine a riverbed as, as a kind of Lego block set, we can move the Lego blocks to change the river completely as well. So with that in mind, dwelling within and seeing individuals operate in a variety of contexts and how they adapt to those contexts is really critical. So you, you might, from a, from a viewpoint um, more removed, be able to observe people who are perceived to be better on more flat water venues. And they have excellent speed, maybe they're really good physically, um, but perhaps they they struggle to adapt to the skill set when the river is big, like it is here in London. So really kind of taking time with individuals, and that's that's important to do um, at a development level as well, dwelling within the situations and, and exposing people to a variety of contexts to see how they adapt and how they take up with things. And then I guess co-create practice design that nurtures that and, and facilitates that. And then obviously you've got the sort of more land-based training and where that fits into that complexity and, and what it feeds for the opportunities to deliver skill and, and lightness on the water in, in, the, in the training run itself or the race run itself. I guess looking at it from a training perspective, and I'm going to liken this a little bit to F1, just because I think that's a thing. Obviously they break it into sectors, which allow... allow um, 
you to figure out where people may be up or down within the part of the course, which I know you guys will do as well. But something, having spoken to a former driver on here previously, he'd mentioned is that the fluctuations between drivers from corner to corner and just kind of their natural style and they'll go, well, I'll be down here because I know on the next one that allows me to put my foot down more and get through, etc. Is there that same variability for you guys in terms of when you're going through gates, someone may be up by one hundred of a second in this bit, but actually because of the way they've taken it, it slows them down for the next gate that they're coming to or it's harder to manoeuvre? And how do you manage that whilst you're observing it? Because I imagine you could very easily go at the end and go, right, who's the quickest? Okay, they're the best. But actually, if you're planning for a particularly technical course out in Eastern European, for example, the way people navigate certain gates might allow them to have more success in that particular region. Yeah, brilliant. I think what you invite me to, to, to lead on with there is, is there's a temptation in sport in the model day, modern day of performance analysis, I think, to... To make the complex complicated and therefore we're too quick to reduce it and to decontextualize the whole into the parts and assume that the parts will then add up to a whole but <laughs> that's not my experience of coaching and, and people's interaction with their environment so i think whilst we do have an excellent analysis service that does break this down it has been part of our journey of co-creating how we want to analyze and how much we bring in or how much we keep back that the skills are interlinked they're in combination um because exactly what you talk about there in f1 is prevalent within canoe slalom that if you reduce down things into manageable parts you see a picture that isn't reality um because the parts are no longer interlinked and therefore you can try and control the part but you can't control how it transfers to the whole and it's very much how i see skill so how i see skill is very um has a nice mirror to how i see the use of analysis really so yeah, obviously we keep our eyes open. Um, there probably is a well-acknowledged thing as home advantage in our sport in that the venues are so different um, and it is a sport that you, when you want to dwell within, you need to spend a lot of time there. And because the courses are so different, the more time you spend there, the more courses you're exposed to and therefore the more experiences you have to learn um, where the invitations are to be fast in different ways uh, and watching the locals is very much part of everyone's you know everyone hones in on a venue and probably analyzes the locals for a little bit um, but again it's got to be it's not a copy and paste template i think which is maybe what your formula one driver is talking about it's it has to be contextual to the person interacting in the moment in that environment and and the, and the car in their instance or the paddle and the boat in our instance um because I think a big part of our work is really a strength-based strength approach to coaching. And therefore, people have different strengths in, in different areas. And, and it's the aggregation of those strengths that kind of gives you a clearer picture. So we're often ha having to remind athletes that there's only one split that matters in the sport, and that is, that is the total time. It's not the other 30 or 5 or 10 splits that the different nations might take along the way. The one that really matters, the highest order principle, is is the total time and how you achieve that is is interesting but really important that it's embedded within the whole when you look at it i think uh, this brings me really nicely to a question i think you may have from my previous research some opinions on is kind of the skill acquisition side for an individual 
So your sport is obviously going to be really big on trying to develop and hone particular skills to navigate the water as best they can. In your experience or kind of from your perspective, how have you gone around teaching individuals skills? Um, and what have you had the most success where it's allowed them to translate it from maybe a closed environment whilst you're practicing to then kind of in the heat of the moment when you're traveling however many miles an hour down, <laughs> getting splashed in the face and stuff, they're able to translate <laughs> it into that maybe chaotic environment. Sure, yeah, you invite me to a very <coughs> passionate topic, Michael, so thank you. Um, you reminded me that I do have an opinion and I think a friend of mine tells a slightly rude joke where we all have opinions. Um, but in reflecting to my early coaching years, I'm not sure I did have an opinion on what skill acquisition was. And that's interesting. So when I reflect back on it, I had a number of jolts that have led me to consider my early coaching years as, as, as what I would call a jigsaw coach. Um, the picture of what I was trying to achieve with whoever it was in front of me was clear in my head. Um, you know, it was a very artistic view of canoe slalom. Um, it looked very, very clear and everyone could fit into that model. And by that, I mean, the jigsaw picture was clear on the box and the parts were over here and the parts were the individual. And therefore you're right. I did decompose skill down into technique into very, what I would call impoverished or non-contextual parts. So we would do a lot of work on the flat water on stroke biomechanics, for example, um, with a view that I believed it would magically, then when you put that jigsaw piece back into the hole, you would see this picture that was already there for you. And you, and you just you just fill in and you're coloring in between the lines effectively. Um, of course, 10 or so years of coaching later, that wasn't happening. Um, people were quitting the sport because they weren't as engaged as I had assumed them to be. Um, they weren't being treated as individuals, I don't think, um, in terms of yeah how they relate to the skill sets or how they sort of self-organize around their own characteristics. Um, and it really was a real jolt to me, really, to consider like what, what the sport actually was. And I would encourage any listener to actually take a step back and take some time and say, what is your sport? So for me, what is canoe slalom in terms of the race run, the game, the F1 race, whatever it might be? Like, what is your sport? What are the demands on the performer in the competition element of your sport? And how well are you, how well does your practice methodologies align to that? And when, when I started to... that question, when you asked that question to yourself, what is canoe Island? What was the answer that you then got back? Or what's the answer that currently you've ended up with, which has allowed you to have this um, viewpoint? Mm, yeah, so it's an answer I've gone on a journey with colleagues both in and out of slalom, actually, because I love an independent opinion with no baggage. But where I've got to or is, is what I would call becoming to have an understanding because I don't believe I'll ever be there. Um, so it's an evolution over time. But our sport is extremely dynamic and very much in a state of flux. Therefore, um, the key things are decision-making, intention, attention, decision-making an action in a fluid environment, really. So I we used to prepare for the event by setting a plan off the bank that we thought was viable. That was the jigsaw picture. Here's the run. Here's how it looks to be good on the run. Go and achieve that jigsaw piece. Put your pieces into that, into that jigsaw puzzle. 
and how close you get when you come out the end will be your score and that will be your place where you where you deserve to place what i've come to learn through dialogue and co-creation with athletes and myself is that is that the view off the bank is a very conventional view um, and it's influenced where i position myself in coaching and it's very different to what is happening in the run and decisions in the run can be very different in the moment and the invitations for, for action that will give a good outcome can be very different to the conventional view that you you would in the position you would have liked to have been in in the river so um elements that have got me to that point that? have you got an yeah, example so of how the context may change what the athlete maybe feels to what you see from the side yeah, so I mean, we have a camera system here that is, um, I think football have it as well. It's um, it's kind of, it's kind of like an overhead, big overhead camera system. You wear GPS bib, etc. So, for example, when I'm down at river level, um, as I've said, it's really important for athletes to stay dry on top of the water to enhance their speed across the river and to be more in control of of the water's perturbations. When you're down at river level, you see every little regression in speed. You see every little hit, you see the water break the buoyancy, break the face and slow things down. When you go to that camera view up there, things look quicker and you don't see these small perturbations in speed and things like that. So that's an extreme view of being really high to just on, on the bank. But if you take that to the view the athletes have down at ground level, everything looks really different. Um, and therefore, if a coach is quite imposing of a plan or a, a prescribed technical routine on a course i've become humble enough to know that that's from a viewpoint that they don't experience perceptually anyway so it's largely irrelevant and if you're imposing that upon them and they're taking that on board then my experience is that they're likely to be paying attention to information that isn't important or specifying for their action in the run they're effectively trying to recreate a movie from the bank um, that isn't their experience and it in my experience it's either it's either congested them mentally in that they've had too many information sources in there and i've had people verbalize to me i knew you'd hate that or i was mindful i didn't achieve what you wanted me to achieve there which was a big alarm job for me because i've always positioned the athlete as the one doing and, and that the sport is there so that feedback was a big message that that wasn't what i was achieving through my coaching um or simply that they're just not seeing the invitations for action in the moment, that, you know, because water comes and goes for us. A wave is sometimes there, it's sometimes not there. Um, so whether you use it with a particular blade or not is dependent on how you arrive at it and where you arrive at it from. Therefore, we want to be like higher order principles and, and more adaptable. So what you'll see from my early years of coaching and, and maybe other people is that the more prescribed you are i think the more narrow your bandwidth for performance is um so people freeze on the course if they're not on a particular blade that they said they wanted to be on for example if they don't arrive at that corner in f1 on on the, the line or the camber they wanted to um, they freeze uh, and of course that that further augments um time losses down the course really um, and often just can freak people out mentally and so they're very confined to a narrow bandwidth of performance i they'll perform if the stars align and the river is is in harmony with them um i guess that doesn't happen very often in my experience and the best in the world from my observations are really adaptable and really dynamic um to, to the environment in front of them i think the yeah the 
the cornering one's a really interesting one. I think if everyone can liken it to just driving around their driving their car, you might be driving your car around a corner and be expecting to go a certain thing. All of a sudden you see a puddle of water on the corner or maybe an animal or, or whatever, and you have to divert. Whereas if you stick to that plan, it's going to cause an accident or whatever. Whereas actually, if you're able to adapt and move where you go on the corner, then obviously you're able to keep going. I, I liken it from what you're saying there, kind of in a way similar to that. My next question at the back of that is, how do you support them to, one, be comfortable with that, and two, kind of learn that adaptability, decision-making in the moment mindset? Because I imagine, one, it's at times maybe not the most common view. I'd imagine they probably have had experiences of coaches are going prescriptive of this is the line you need to take, this is the type of blade you need to use, this is the body shape you need to be in that's going to be a hell of a shift for them if they've come from that to what you're asking to do, which is basically tell me how you feel and then we'll work with how you feel on the course to maybe come up with some strategies that allow you to navigate the course in an effective way for you. Yeah. So it's really clear or really important to me, should I say, Michael, at this stage to say I, I used to coach like that. And it's, it's still hard work to not coach like that at times as well. So I'm, I'm, it's really clear to be open and vulnerable here. This is my journey. This is what I've been curious to explore and what's kind of worked for me over the years. I'm not prescribing it on anyone else, but I invite them to explore it. Um, I chatted with an athlete who this week who has come on that journey with me. So that's an important part. Like it's my learning from my early forays into nonlinear approach or constraints-led approach would told me that I need to um, communicate my why to the athletes as well and to take them on a journey. And I don't mean drag them on a journey, but invite them on a journey to explore my own learning and curiosities as much as we ask that from the athletes. So they're as aware on what I'm working on as I am aware on what they're working on. Um, but the athlete, yeah, the quote was, um, letting go of control was terrifying but it's been really enriching over the years. Um, and by that, they mean that they have moved from a position of, of pure repetition. It's not quite possible in sport. It's probably not possible at all. Um, but in terms of wanting to control, you know, um, what, I won't name them, but their mantra was, I want to do things till I can't get them wrong. And so a lot of repetition repeats on stable tasks or more stable tasks in our sport and very prescribed on blade work etc um, but not the most adaptable of athletes and we've gone on a journey together really to discover yeah what else is out there how do we become more adaptable to be more stable in our outcomes of performance in racing and training um, so I think the important thing is to meet people where you're at or where they're at more importantly meet the athlete where they're at they're the most important person because they're the one doing the doing they're the one in the interaction so find out where they're at and like I'm I'm on a bit of a <laughs> I don't know whether it's a solo mission but I invite anyone to come with on a mission to kind of move pedagogy or, or methodologies of practice um, away from the domain of coaches and 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 embrace it across those doing the doing the performers the athletes the players as well because I think we don't need to hold all the cards you know it doesn't need to be an egotistical position of power from a coaching angle I think we can go go on a journey together as companions and learn together. And the athletes have certainly been the most powerful learning tool for me over the years. So meeting people where they're at and finding out what stretch is comfortable and what they're curious to explore. 
um, and moving with them rather than moving them to you, I think, um, and seeing where that takes you. So, yeah, I certainly, when I, in my early years of taking on the athlete, I've just been talking around, um, I was in the very sort of curious phase of switching from a more linear approach to a non-linear approach. Um, but what I did do is spend a lot of time observing them do what I would call more linear practice because I wanted to understand why they were doing that, what they were getting from that, because it's important to connect with the individual before I have any influence. Um, if I just jump in, then I've got no relationship and, and therefore it's going to unravel pretty quickly. Um, so the level of stretch, seeing where people are at, communication across the two of you. Um, and then, yeah, some safe to fail experiments, I think, along the way. And so a balance of training rather than a complete flip to a very complex approach, I guess. And in terms of practically within your session design or your session types or um, the way you design, yeah, particular practice of a skill, how has that change affected the way you actually deliver in that aspect? Hugely, I would say. Hugely, uh, a... Firstly, at a level of awareness, I think so little did I, I as I talked earlier, I, I had no clue or opinion on how I was coaching before because I, I hadn't really studied learning, coaching, skill acquisition. Um, once I did and I was aware of how I was practicing and perhaps the lack of why behind how I did practice, um, I noticed the first thing was a, a realisation that I was practicing a lot of non-linear approaches, but without any awareness of them. So we were doing constraints-based stuff. It's common in this sport to do that sort of stuff, but I had no awareness of it. And it wasn't underpinned by a, an understanding of any theory or anything like that. So the language changed to start, I think. It became more about, um, about interactions, about the doing, rather than um, kind of prescription from coaching. Um, so it, it was... Yeah, it would have been a lot more around, um, shall we explore some different varieties here or how else could that be done rather than go and try that like this? Um, is there anything we've missed here? Uh, I would be moving gates around to, to add some variability. So rather than perhaps waiting until they'd done a section well and then moving on, I would just add some more complexity into a section and see if they could still achieve the same stable outcome through a variable start position or, or, or almost invite the fact that some stable outcomes that they'd achieved, i.e. they were really good at going off a left blade for a particular jump over a big bit of white water, try and engineer a situation with the gates where the left blade was no longer possible. Um, so that if they did, for whatever reason, which happens in S-Port, arrive without a left blade in the water, they'd had an experience that told them there were multiple solutions available here. Um, where that's led us really is maybe like rather than jump off here on a left, land on a right, move there. It's more about what, what's the highest principle here? Well, it's about moving left to right across a feature. So we focus our attention on that. And I guess what you're asking here, the practice has been about learning to self-organize without having attention on every internal cue. And by internal cue, I mean a technical cue, i.e. where's my arm? Where's my body in relation to my boat? Um, what tension have I got here and there um, to a much more sort of environmentally holistic queuing system. Um, 
yeah, with analogies and things like that. Um, so we trust trust a lot more, but that's been important to say that's been a, a passage of time and it's still a passage of time in terms of people experiencing that and letting go is a, is a big and be a scary beast, I think. It might be a challenging question. Has this led to any of your athletes having kind of unique styles? Because um, what I can imagine on this, if you look at it from a, again, using another sport here, cricket in perspective, you've got someone like Steve Smith out in yeah. Australia at the moment who leaves the ball in the most unique way that He's a fidget, seen. isn't he? He's a fidget. Yeah, he fidgets <laughs> around. And that, if you went and had a cricket book that maybe I had when I was growing up in the 1990s, no cricket book would tell you to use that technique to leave a ball. And no one would say when they're doing the Sky Sports analysis, this is a really good and effective way to do yeah. it. But actually, he's found a technique that is useful for him and the way that he plays as an individual. So I imagine from, and I could be wrong, but from what you're saying there, it seems like you could end up with athletes who have quite unique styles because they just come up with solutions that's right for them at that moment or with their body type or the way that they um, navigate the course. Yeah, absolutely. Personal experience, Michael, and I'll be like really, really direct with this for a bit of impact is I've tried, I've tried to shoehorn people into a style and it, and it was very unsuccessful. Like I banged my head up against brick wall, um, trying to, trying to complete that jigsaw and have everyone look the same. Um, and it didn't work. So the biggest change has been that flip to viewing what is good or what is quality as, as the outcome of the task. As you say, as the outcome, like Steve Smith's one of the highest, you know, scoring run scorers in world cricket, etc. It works. It works. It might not look like David Gower for those purists, but it works. So it's, it's like what I call an end in mind approach. We focus on the outcome of the task and the stability of the outcome in the task, not one way of doing it, not consistency. I'm really clear with the definition difference between that and stability. And we work backwards from that rather than the approach of the jigsaw, which is I want it to look like this. I'll work on the component parts, put it into the system to look like that. And the outcome will look like this. And we'll all play like David Gower or leave like Jeffrey Boycott, whoever it might be. Um, so yeah, of course you get uni uniqueness because you embrace it and you allow it you allow it to be explored and that's permissions is so important like we have to be mindful of the perceived power and I'm, I'm careful to use the word perceived or the perceived position of power and how how poorly that can be used with coaching to suppress people's individuality and to suppress their expression and their uniqueness and because we all want creative athletes but yet i've been guilty of doing everything to suppress creativity over the years. Um, and now sort of 15, 16 years on, I'm trying to invite it at every opportunity and, and are really clear to affirm it at every opportunity as well. So yeah, uniqueness is key. I mean, everybody's unique. Somebody asked me in a university lecture the other week, do you, do you train adaptability? And I said, well, it's happening whether you like it or not. So yes, we try and embrace training it. <laughs> because that's important because people self-organize in really individual ways for, for various reasons you know a multitude of reasons so therefore running with it makes sense to me now rather than trying to suppress it and control it into a predetermined view of how it should look okay so i guess my next question at the back of that is if an athlete's struggling with a particular technique or a particular turn or a particular 
gate style, for example, how do you then go around supporting them if they've tried a variety of different actions or ways, but they're still having challenges with it and that might be their area for development because for them to reach the top 10 or top five, that is an outcome that ultimately they're losing a lot of time on and they need to have greater levels of success. How do you go around supporting them developing that area? Sure. I mean, start with communication, first of all, try and understand their first person experience of it. Um, and then from a practical perspective, I'm fortunate. I work with very few athletes and I'm full time. So we have a really rich environment where we co-create a lot and the athletes lead a lot of the interactions. But I'll, so I'll try and zoom out to a broader view a little bit. I think we, we would scale the task. So rather than decompose it, i.e. break it down into its parts, we would scale it. So we might, we might scale it to be a less complex version of the task, but it would still hold the information in the environment that for the task for the task they're struggling with. Um, so it would still take place, you know, some key principles of representative information for me would still have water, it would still have poles, the gates that hang over the water. It would have consequence, i.e. you'd have an awareness of time gain or loss because it's within a broader sequence. Um, and some other, some other elements around that. But yeah, essentially we would scale the task and break down or we'd move environment a little bit. So obviously the course itself is, is not just one level playing surface like a football field is. Um, it's very different in each of its sections as you navigate the river. So you can kind of work on similar skills in different contexts. Um, so that is something we might, I might ask the athletes. So uh, one session that I run quite regularly is we have a, real clarity of intention of what someone wants to work on in a skills session. Um, I'm invited then because of time constraints to set the environment, to create the environment. But what I'll do is I'll like over create the environment with a multitude of options. And then the athlete will paddle down that, have a look at some of the tasks available to them and then opt into the ones they are most curious to explore. So in your context there, if they are struggling, they know they can scale it themselves with their own motivation and determination to do so. And so we'll work together on that. But yeah, scaling to a level that we're clear that the slice of the game or the slice of the race run still has information that is representative of the race. But it could be a really small, if someone's really struggling, we've scaled it to be a really small slice, but it still looks like a new slalom. You know, we're not, we're not sat on a Swiss ball in the gym trying to achieve the skill that we're struggling with on the water, if that makes sense, with the poles and the environment and the light, et cetera. I think that's really interesting around the overstimulating the environment, allowing them to then choose or explore what's appropriate for them at that time. I'm just thinking how you could maybe maneuver that into a into a football session, into a rugby session, into a team sport. How do you overstimulate overstimulate the environment and then say, right, this is the outcome we're looking for? Yeah. What you know, what are we going to do? Um, I think that's a really interesting principle, maybe something for me to think about moving forward and kind of how, how... I can maybe expand on that a little bit, if I may. So it might, well, hopefully be useful for someone. Um, so I think in your early coaching, certainly in coach development, it was it's true for me, you, you really push to have a session plan for every session and you push to have written reflections or verbal reflections from every interaction. Um, I don't... 
I wouldn't say I never session plan or I don't have a, a, a certainly a written down plan these days at all. So, but I think some some critiques of like a more ecological approach to coaching, which is is what I lean into, might assume that it's just chaotic and, and people just go and do what they like. Um, I always say I'm meticulously planned to be to enable being extremely fluid in the interaction. So in that example there, I've used a really deep understanding of the athlete's intentions and motivations to practice and where they want to evolve this skill and what they're curious to explore to meticulously plan an environment or create an environment that I believe in, invites opportunities to explore it. Um, but I'm not set with where they go within it. So what I'm trying to do by overstimulating is, is, is have enough roots, if we think about like going off on a, on a hike in the mountains, have enough roots available towards a direction of travel, which might be the peak of the mountain, that they, if they want to go and explore the snow, the snow ridge, they explore the snow ridge because they're determined to do so. Equally, if they want to drop down the mountain and traverse out, out of the wind and outside the snow line, because that's where they're at today, because, you know, they've had their head full of exams and this skill hasn't been going well or whatever it might be, then, then they have that route available as well. But the route isn't predetermined by me. It's, it's subject to their navigation of it in the session itself. Yeah. Uh, using that's really helped. A really good example of this would be like finishing in football. You're finishing into a goal, that's our ultimate objective. But how are we going to do that? You could do it via a cross, you could do it via a move shoot, it could be a bit of combination play, and actually just give them an opportunity to say, right, here's maybe, you know, here's the obstacles that you're going to face in these three different areas, which one might lend itself more towards a cross, one might do that. Try and navigate your way through and see what different types of finishes you can do go and that might be a really nice way of kind of transferring what you've said there into a into a specific football environment and that's just a person I think so, I think so and then you can pardon my ignorance in football I mean I'm a Villa fan so I don't know much about football um but you you can like emphasize some areas within the skill so you know if if you're really wanting to focus on heading for example um, I'm trying to transfer how we might do things here into a football context. Is you don't want to you don't want to rule out the opportunity to finish with your feet or with your knee or whatever it might be. You know, with your left foot, right foot, volley off the deck, whatever it might be, because you don't want to rule out those skills by over focusing or over constraining tasks to guide attention only to heading. But equally, you might want to expose more experience of heading. Therefore, you know, you come up with scoring systems. The goal is a goal, but if it's a headed goal, it might be two points versus a goal, you know, little things like that. So you're not ruling in or out the decision-making that is appropriate for the information in the environment because you probably don't want people putting their head in people's boots two inches off the floor too often. Um, you know, that might not be an invitation to head a ball for most people. Um, so finishing with the feet in that context is important. You don't want them ruling out those invitations. So yeah, like scoring systems, games-based approaches, I use a lot in, and they're underpinned by kind of principles of nonlinear approaches and, and constraints um, alongside that, which is, I've made many mistakes doing them. I always call them excellent mistakes because I've brought in information that isn't from the environment and things like this. It's, it's a great journey to go on. Um, uh, I think that's really interesting. I think the constraints-based approaches, some use Ben Bartlett specifically good at that over at Fulham and the FA and I've worked with him and he's fantastic with that. But I think that what you're saying there, actually just providing them with different routes to the challenge, maybe all at one time allow them to explore in a really interesting way. 
something I'd like to pick up on, um, and it might link into kind of when you're doing camps, etc. As you mentioned, kind of the planning process. So I'd really kind of like to know what is your kind of plan, do review, if you like, and how is that affected by a course? So obviously you've mentioned um, that different areas have different types of courses. What does that look like for athletes? Do you vis do visualization work? Do they just have clean runs allowing to explore? Kind of what does that plan, do review process look like kind of for a camp of these athletes going away? Yeah, I think it's um, it's evolving all the time. This approach, as as myself and the athletes go on this journey of of understanding, you know what what we perceive the sport to be and our interaction with it, um, it's got a lot less rigid. I would say over the years. I give you an example, and there's a, I, I'm slightly reluctant to announce it here, but there, I do, we do have a paper, me and some co-authors, pending on on a performance planning approach into the Olympic Games. And yeah, hopeful that, you know, by the time this goes out, maybe it's maybe it's live and you can stick it in the uh, in the show notes. Um, yeah, there's a blend of um, sort of open recovery. I guess the, the level I'm fortunate enough to support, they are highly skilled. And a lot of the, the pickup, I would call it, when you go to a new venue is about is about understanding the environment specific context that invites or doesn't invite certain options. Um, so therefore exploration and, and dwelling within that environment is critical. Um, so we're often seen to, you know, say if we've got one, two, three weeks into a race, the early, the early phases are about just exploring and, and attuning to the environment itself and what it offers and what it doesn't offer. So rather than having like coach led prescribed tasks, um, which is what the race is because external individuals set us a course, not even that I set them a course. Um, what we'll do is we'll try and cover as much ground as possible. Um, and it's largely athlete led. And I'm, I'm observing what, seeing what they're curious, what invitations they are picking up on, what they've maybe missed. And then the dialogue around that post is, is kind of just seeing where we're at and, and building the experience as we go. As we get closer to racing, we're probably more and more representative um in that we will have more sort of we'll use a planning process from the riverbank more than we might in a more sort of skill adaptability phase um because we don't get a practice in our event we just get to view others a select few often of an inferior quality to the people racing at the race um they're called demo runners basically in our world um paddle of course so I have witnessed a movement towards doing less and less in preparation though and trusting um, sort of more higher, higher order principles. So the purpose of the coursework for us, that tactical planning, as we've moved into this more ecological space has changed. It's less of a prescription and more about guiding attention to where the key information sources are to self-organize to the tasks during the run. There's a, there's a lot of trust there and that obviously becomes underpinned from training in this way. Um, would that be, I'm just trying to analyse that as you're talking, would that be, for example, you're letting them kind of do a run or two and kind of guide their thoughts, you maybe watch the demo runner or demo run how many there are and say, right, uh, gates 7, 10, 11, these are maybe three areas for consideration to have from what we've seen from other runners. You maybe come up with a strategy of what it looks like, but these are the three main 
key factors I think we need drawn attention to? I would say that is done, but from the athlete. Um, so, so that the, yeah, the, the kind of leading training and things like that would be very different to what we would call performance training. So we're exploring at the moment, which which the paper is on, um, an adaptation of uh, Fabian Otte, who is a, is in football actually, is a, a goalkeeping coach at Borussia Mönchengladbach at the moment. Um, a framework of called periodization of skills training. So we're exploring that as an ecological holistic framework to skill development and how that looks across micro and macro scales. Um, so for a race day there, like the interactions are led by the athlete. So it wouldn't, you wouldn't see me coming up. We need there's decisions and options are here, here and here on the course. What I do do is I have the capacity to take on more information than them is where we've got to. Therefore, any of the analysis, and things like that is filtered through what the athlete has invited me to interact with, not what I think or impose upon them, if that makes sense. So if an athlete has flagged that they're struggling to get to simplicity of attention on sequence gates six to eight, and they feel like there's multiple options available to them and, and they're not sure which ones have an intention toward, um, they have invited me to perhaps bring some visual footage available to them. Um, and then the challenge is then is to put that into their, their field of perception rather than trying to copy what they've seen. It's like, what, what does that mean for them? Um, but yeah, largely they, they take control of, of the interaction because I've found that if they don't, or if they're not given the opportunity to, then it's easy to overcomplicate and put too much information into the system from a coaching perspective. I still do it, I did it this morning. I added information into the interaction that wasn't, I don't think, in hindsight, needed. And then the athlete was almost worried about whether they needed to reply to what they thought I wanted to hear, rather than focused on, on, on how they were going to approach the task. Um, so, yeah, I think there's an element of, like we talked about at the start, we can overanalyze things and bring too much information into the system. I think we've gone, we always talk about being willing to go technical and, and deep and complex but by the time we're ready to go the athlete is ready to do their run we've got it to a level of simplicity that is is really quite minimal and that gives them the headspace the capacity the perceptual capacity to engage in the information in the moment rather than have like second-hand sources of information that are always about evaluation am i where i wanted to be is a common question and um, by the time i've considered that i've missed the opportunity to move there that was in my visual field of of attention okay yeah i think i think that makes sense and in terms probably went a bit deep there my apologies <laughs> no, no no i think it does i think that it's interesting that you kind of use you're almost like a resource for them to use in terms of areas that they're struggling with they come to you and go this is what i think or feel have you got any additional information you can have to help me make a decision yeah exactly that and if, if we want to link this to, to re research and theory, so I always say, like, I have I have knowledge about canoe slalom. I've done it myself as well, but, I mean, these guys are way high, way more highly skilled in the doing, the knowledge of, of the interaction in the moment, um, which is, you know, I used to place a lot of value on being able to articulate how you did stuff. But I've realized that's it's probably actually a, a non-specifying source of information. But So I have a knowledge about that I can offer perspective but it's it's not as important as the first person perspective of the person 
therefore I can complicate things for them too easily. And so it's really important for me that they lead the dance um, of the interaction and, and that, you know, I can guide and support it where invited to. Um, and that's obviously a process of iteration over time. You know, we get it wrong all the time. Um, but we've got the strength of relationship where we can communicate what was working for you. You know, I'll often put my hand up and go, I apologize this morning. I think I interrupted the level of simplicity you'd reached on that move. And I'm wondering if that was from an egotistical perspective for myself. Um, and then we'll, you know, and the athlete will say, yeah, you did. And give me a mouthful or <laughs> they don't, I'm lying. Um, or they'll say, oh, no, I didn't notice it. It didn't have an impact on me. But that allows me to kind of evolve my interactions in the future with them um, as an invitation. And then in terms of a review of a run or review of the run that they've just done, what does that look like? And is that very individualized? Does it change from athlete to athlete? Yeah, it does. And increasingly it's doing so, I would say. Um, so, I mean, traditionally in the sport, if I zoom out of my own interactions quite a lot, um, so there'll be splits available. Um, so segmenting the run into the However detailed you want them could be, yeah, could be into like four sections, five, or you could be going into every sort of component. Um, and then we'll have video. Like uh, people lean into video hugely. I'd say people are addicted to video and maybe they just like watching themselves paddle. I'm not sure. I mean, increasingly these days, it's sort of got content for social media, right? But um, we're trying to be less reliant on external sources of information um, and seeing how that goes for us so that we, we almost starve ourselves of them to see how we trust ourselves in the, the interaction of the doing. And we trust our first. So for, same for me, like I used to film all the time or I filmed with the iPad and I used to, I, I used to have a little kind of like crutch habit that I'd watch every clip after they'd gone down just to clarify what I thought or what I thought I'd seen. I realized by the time that's happened, it's, it's further removed from what was actually happening. So try and use less of it these days, but traditionally we will, the athlete will lead the interaction. So there'll be a hot debrief directly after the run. It's what we call like an emotional download. Uh, and that's probably the richest one because that's where we get closest to maybe where their attention was or something like that. And I'm really kind of, yeah, mindful of that. Then we go into the cold debrief where we're a little bit more, we bring in a bit more objective information, but we're more and more mindful that, as you've said before, that can reduce the task into component parts. Maybe isn't reality. Um, so we're somewhere in between, I would say at the moment. Um, but if we do end up going deep into technical components within a video review, i.e. Jimmy did it like that, let's have a look at Jimmy. He was 0.6 faster across a three-second split. Um, what we make sure we do better now is it's not a copy and paste solution. It's what does that mean for you? And what does it mean for where your attention is placed? And how simple can you get it back out? So it's, it's about you. Um, so a journey of exploration, I think, Michael, but... Traditionally, video and splits, but again, the athlete is increasingly in charge of, of what is brought to the table. I will be across all of it because we're really time pressured on race day generally um, for access to those runs. It's almost like if you imagine doing qualifying in Formula One, but you know the information isn't coming in as quick in real time, and then you've got to go again straight away. It's like, so you've got to pick and choose. So I tend to get across of it provide a first filter, then wait for the invitation of what, what an athlete will want to look at. Because I, I think there's no rules. Like, I don't think we know that watching video makes you faster on the subsequent passage. 
Um, so I'm always looking to rupture tradition a little bit and say, what's the purpose of what we're doing here? Yeah, I had a really interesting one with a guy called Tosh Farrell the other day who um, he, he used to work for Everton and he said one of the techniques he used to use with the kids when they were learning skills and stuff is to get them to talk through as they're doing it. So what they feel and how they feel as a way of thing. I always imagine the older age groups, whether there is or particularly also any value in that in terms of as they're going down, talking through what they feel, what they see, although again, it might change the perception of what they're actually focusing on. You might get a hot take there and then as to why they made the decision that you wouldn't get from the video. They might be like, I just did that, or it might be bump left. So they knew at that moment in time, once you put it together. But yeah, it's an interesting principle, what he said there for sure. Um, I've got two more questions for you. Um, so the last one is, and I might butcher some names here, so apology if I do. Go um, for it. People like Jacob Kruger and Ricardo Funk, I think that's the name, who obviously... Oh, yeah, yeah. Slight butchering, I'll let. So you've gone for... I, I, this is like a quiz. I like it. I think you've gone for Jakob Grigar there. Yeah. Slovakia, and Ricardo Funk from Germany. I've gone for <laughs> ones I thought I'd be able to pronounce because there's a couple <laughs> there. I was like, no chance. But what... For people that are kind of of that level, that have obviously gone on Olympic medals, etc., is there anything that you've seen that really stands out about either the way they work, their preparation, their evaluation, or just them as an athlete? Yeah, I mean, those are two really exciting examples. I'm always hesitant to talk of others because, as I indicated earlier, unless you dwell within, I don't, I don't think you truly understand. And obviously, other nations are guarded about what they they um, give away as to who's working on. Uh, if I was to give a blanket sort of assumption or stereotypes, I would say that the German is German system or German approach is, um, is, is pretty structured and pretty, it may, may be more linear, I, I'm not sure, but um, have a very seem to have a very traditional approach to periodization. Um, so it's capacity into, into speed and anaerobic and that sort of stuff. Um, so they spend the early parts of the winter in that respect. Um, so it's a more sort of controlled approach. I think the Slovaks, um, well, the guy in question, so he is like sponsored by Red Bull. He's quite an outgoing, vivacious guy, um, but the quietest, most, most kindly spoken individual. He's English. Yeah, I think he would probably train in a more variable environment to maybe Ricarda, but again I'm not too sure but it's really interesting in our sport Michael because the sport itself dictates that variability is inherent and adaptability is inherent as I would say it is in all sports but in ours perhaps more than some um, you know the water is the opponent etc it can work with you against you etc um, I think the characteristics those guys do have is they're really adaptable um, they're really calm and still through their bodies in the moment, which gives them the capacity to have good attention and, can, and see things clearly. Um, and they're very light across the water. You know, Ricardo in particular is exceptional physically in the women's discipline. And she's extremely light and extremely powerful and her like transfer of physicality through the water um, with like haptic feel is, 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 yeah, is, is outstanding. Um, so, yeah, you get different systems. It's really interesting, isn't it? Like the Slovaks traditionally, they're all coached by their dad or their, you know, a family member or their husband or wife. And, and they've kind of had a more sort of family kind of system come through and been extremely successful with that. British have had a more 
sort of um, professional system, I guess, you know, these programs feed through to this program. Um, and I think everyone is navigating towards a more program-based professional approach. Um, and I've had a lot of chats with the Slovak team manager who used to work in Scotland as to, you know, it's, it's the danger of um, pulling the rug from under your own culture to copy another team or approach's culture, isn't it? I think you work with, the beauty of our sport is it's situated at the individual environment interaction. And I just love embracing that and everything that goes into that people's socio-cultural experiences, psychological experiences, the facilities they have access to will determine, you know, the Germans, perhaps they train in that more traditional way because they don't have a white water course for half the winter because it's frozen or not available. So they only have access to white, to flat water. So that that's their invitation to train in that way. Whereas we have this beautiful course behind me that pumps uh, all year round. So, so we, we, we struggle to um, turn down the opportunity to come play on the bubbles. Now, I think people uh, at times undersell the importance of a culture or what the, you know, that, that country breeds. I look at um, Fiji rugby team, for example. I, I don't think you'll get them to be very, very structured teams, similar to the way we are, but it's because they love the excitement. They love handles. And that's why they're the best at sevens, because of the way they play and the way they culturally fit. And, yeah, I think that the times, although the imitation is you know, good intentions, I think you take away actually what the culture of that country or that individual's grown up into how that's actually facilitated their development and why maybe they suit that particular system rather than can't just pick up and copy and paste, as you said. Yeah. And your, your words there remind me very closely if people are curious about research. So Marco Sullivan and Jimmy Vaughan and others over at AIK Stockholm in a football context have done some great and are doing some great ethnographic studies around the influence of culture and socio-cultural factors within coaching academies through the, right through the age groups that you, you work at yourself and, and into elite and um, senior football as well. Perfect. And last question for me, and it could be difficult, um, so apologies. Who is the, we'll go more, I'll phrase this differently. Who's the most influential coach or person you've worked with and why? great question i think if my instinct answer is 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 a number of athletes um fortunate enough to work with two people for over 10 years and the influence of them on my own practice as we journeyed together like we grew as coach and athlete together i think through some interesting experiences for them through adulthood um so yeah in terms of athletes those would be mallory franklin and kimberly woods um and uh, Another one I work with um, at the moment, Adam, would be very similar, Adam Burgess, in terms of a shorter term. But coaching-wise, um, I think some of the influences, the really rich influences, not to say there aren't any within canoeing, have been the people who tripped me up with no baggage from Canoe Slalom World. So um, Russell Earnshaw, who works across rugby and multi-sport, a former rugby player himself, um, people in, in the more educational space, like Richard Cheatham, MBE, um, people who've come into my environment and kind of ask, why do you do that? Because they have no pre-context that it's normal to do that. Uh, and they really kind of ruptured my practice um, and given me the invitation then to do what I want with it. It's not being prescriptional or dictatorial. It's like, I've noticed this. Would you like to unpack that? Um, so those guys in particular and, and many, many, many more along the route, I would say, 
Um, uh, an influence on me within slalom, I think, would be a guy called Mark Delaney. He doesn't work with the British team at the moment, but successful Olympic coach and Olympic athlete himself. Um, and his, the more I grow into a more ecological space, the simplicity with which he, he managed to get to in viewing canoe slalom was, was really exciting for me to be able to kind of further understand. I wasn't ready for it in my early years, but um, I think you really have to know a sport to get it to a simple level, don't you? And yeah, he was the epitome of, of both there. Perfect. Listen, really appreciate your time. A fascinating content uh, conversation, which I think has provided a lot of content for people to go away with. So, yeah, really appreciate your time and hopefully we can catch up again with you soon. Thank you, Michael. All the best. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.